I'm Colleen Deli, host of the Inside the Vatican podcast. Pope Francis's book, Let Us Dream, is a wide-ranging interview that covers his thinking of how we should emerge from the COVID pandemic. Joining me today to discuss Let Us Dream is Austin Ivory, who collaborated with the Pope on this project. Welcome to Inside the Vatican, Austin. Hi, Colleen. Great to be with you. So, Austin, first question. You're not quite the author of this book or the editor. How would you describe how you put this book together with the Pope? What was your role? Yeah, it's actually been very complicated to sometimes to explain what my role has been. This is a book by Pope Francis, uh, and it's titled In Conversation With Me, but I never actually appear in the book. There is no question and answer. So it's a very unusual format. And the reason it's unusual is that it is the fruit of um, many uh, conversations and exchanges that Pope Francis and I had over the summer during lockdown about the, uh, the, co- the COVID crisis. But I wasn't ever able to go over to Rome and you know, sit with him. So it couldn't be ever really a kind of an interview. So we worked out this, this system, really, where I would ask him questions. We, he would sometimes suggest articles. I would draft. He would then work on the draft. Uh, and so it, it was much more of a collect. Well, a collaboration is one way of putting it. But collaboration implies that it was a relationship of equals. It was really much more a master-disciple relationship. But I suppose what I did was that I suppose I provided the arch- the, the kind of the, the, the scaffolding, if you like, the architecture uh, on which the Pope could, or around which the Pope could organize his ideas and hang his thoughts. So I think it worked. It ultimately worked very well. Yeah, I mean, I thought it worked really well. Um, let's talk about that architecture scaffolding that you brought up. The book is divided into three parts, right? It follows this structure that we hear about a lot in Latin American theology and Catholic social teaching, which is see, judge, act. It's a way of evaluating your decision-making, right? When when faced with a social injustice, usually something like this, you see the problem, you ponder it, you discern, and then you choose how you want to act, and then you act. Um, and so that's that's also the structure that you use to approach this book with the Pope. Um, so let's let's start with the C section. Uh, and I, I want to talk to you specifically about this interesting uh, kind of more personal section that the Pope gets into, where he talks about his own personal COVIDs, right? He thinks that this pandemic, he's been saying this since since back in March, he's been saying that this pandemic is a time to to pause, it forces us to stop and to think. And so can you tell me about those times that the Pope talks about in the book where he was forced to do that? Sure. I mean, as you say, the Sea Judge Act uh, structure, which, I mean, Francis has in many ways reformulated in a, in a je- rather Jesuit way of, sort of contemplate, discern, propose. It's really the pattern of conversion. So you know, it's when we, it's how we look at reality. We look at reality and we look at the truth uh, with the eyes of the Good Shepherd. Uh, and then we move into sort of what does this time tell us? How do we distinguish between the spirits? And then what action then flows from choosing the path of God? So it's actually about, it's about how we change. It's about how also we let God into uh, history. Uh, and so The big theme of the book, one of the big themes of the book, uh, is the way that suffering and crisis can produce in us important changes, that there is always a grace on offer to us in a time of tribulation. A loving, merciful God never leaves us alone, but offers us, as it were, a Noah's Ark to take us out out of the flood into a new future. And in part one, where the Pope is not just looking at the world, but also telling us how to look at the world and and the obstacles and the temptations which prevent us doing that. And then he's talking a lot about the suffering, the suffering that he sees. 
he talks about the suffering in the Bible. Uh, and he, the invitation is, how does this suffering, how can this suffering change us if we if we embrace it? So his own personal COVIDs, as he calls them, as the result, I mean, by the way, there's the, the part of the book where I had to push him a little bit because he doesn't like talking about himself. Right. I was surprised. I was like, I haven't seen this type of depth from him before on, on his personal experience. Uh, well, and, and I can tell you it required, it required a little bit of pressure and I felt a bit bad about it because he doesn't <laughs> like talking about himself. And he pushed back and he said, you know, I don't really know. I said, look, you know, You've talked about this in the Bible. You've talked about this. We need to know how has God acted in your life, in your own suffering? And, you know, he he got that point and, and then gave me more and more, actually. So, in fact, what we have is the story of the three times in his life of intense uh, suffering, very different times. One, when he nearly died age 21 on the operating table as a, he had just entered a, the diocesan seminary. Uh, and it was the time, of course, when he had his part of his lung removed and he really did nearly die. I mean, the story is very dramatic. And then another time is when he was sort of uprooted in Germany in 1986 after a, a, a period really of being provincial, being the dominant figure in the uh, Argentine uh, Jesuit province. So he's now in his 50s, ends up in Germany, and you can see he's just completely deracinated, uprooted, uh, a, a, and in a kind of existential crisis. And then the third one, which is really the greatest of all, which people know about, if you know his story, there's this famous period, which is sometimes called the Cordoba exile. Right. Uh, yeah. And it, it's 1999. When, after a very difficult period in the province, which I uh, narrate in, in my biography, The Great Reformer, he ends up really without any kind of role. This is, and he's, he's well into his 50s now. Uh, as I say, he's been he's been a leader really for most of his Jesuit life. The dominant now suddenly finds himself uh, completely abandoned in, in this Jesuit house, but with no role, no importance, no leadership. And, you know, he, he described it very, very movingly. I mean, he has talked about it before, but I think this time he, he described it very, very movingly and what it felt like to be, as, as he said, you know, sent off the, the soccer pitch, the football pitch and, and put on the reserve bench, you know. So, uh, by the way, just as an anecdote, uh, you'll be amused by this, that uh, we had some translation challenges. And one of them was that he, he said to me uh, when he was telling me about this, me pasaron la boleta in Spanish, which uh, la boleta in Argentina is is a it's a very Argentine way of saying what you say in America is the check, right? You know, when you go to a restaurant, you pay the check. So you basically they they passed me the check, you see. So because this was an American publication, I put I translated his as as they sent me the check, you see. Well, my wife was reading an early draft, and she said, "Why? Why did they pay him? <laughs> because, of course, in because in UK, sure, check right. is something you, you receive when you pay somebody, you know. So anyway, that caused a few. So I had to change it in the end to, you know, they made me pay in English, but actually in Spanish, it sounds much better. Yeah, it sounds a little more sinister in English when they say they made me pay. I, I thought that came <laughs> off a little strong. <laughs> There's also kind of a funny story in this this Cordoba part where he talks about how he serendipitously read this 37 volume uh, history of the popes, right? Yeah, and, and, and he, 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 I mean, again, he said that story before, but what he said before is that you know, he said reading that basically the entire history of the papacy inoculated me against anything I was going to find once I was elected pope. So, but, I mean, even though there's a, there's a joke there, it's funny, but actually he's also saying something very important, which is how providential that period was. Right. And he talks about it actually as, I mean, he doesn't talk about the suffering, but clearly from what he says, it was a time of suffering. But he says also time, you know, I'm surprised looking back on it on how how prayerful I was, how deep my prayer was. Um, and then, he, you know, uh, and then and that I wrote a lot uh, and then I read a lot like the, this 37 volume. 
Now, I know from you know my own writing about this uh, and my own knowledge of his writings that I would say this is probably the richest period of his life in terms of his own writing. Uh, some absolutely searing, brilliant stuff comes out of that period. Um, and in many ways, people say, uh, people who are close to him, uh, say that this pontificate is the fruit of his Cordoba exile, that the purgation or the purification, whatever you want to call it, that, that went then, you know, at a very deep level, I think, transformed him in a way that we're now seeing that, you know, the fruits of uh, as Pope. So all of this, I think, powerfully illustrates, if you like, his point, which is that periods of tribulation and suffering, hard they are to get through. Um, but afterwards, we look back and we say, wow, you know, I wouldn't be the person I was now were it not for that. Right. Now, when we're faced with those situations, uh, Francis is really good. And, and it's not just in this interview, in this book, but also in a lot of his other writings, especially about the COVID pandemic. He points to the fact that we can be drawn in, in kind of two opposing directions, both of which only uh, end up closing us in on ourselves, right? He says, you know, on the one hand, there's a temptation to... Um, to withdraw. Yeah, yeah, to withdraw. To withdraw, to withdraw into ourselves right. and to hide behind our functions. He warns against the, the, the temptation to withdraw into our roles and functions. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you've written before a number of times, uh, especially in your last book in Wounded Shepherd, about uh, the Pope as kind of a, a spiritual director, right? The world's Jesuit spiritual director leading the world through, you know, kind of the the spiritual exercises. Um, and we see that again in this book, and you also actually use that term, the world's spiritual director. Um, and so I want to ask you about what Francis is trying to teach us about discernment, particularly in this second section where, you know, he's talking about how to, how to discern, how to choose. What are the basic takeaways there for somebody who might not be familiar with with Jesuit discernment? Well, th this metaphor that you're right that I've used a lot in in the last two or three years, really, of, of uh, to describe his leadership, because I, I think it really was a kind of a, a revelation for me, really in 2018 with the whole clerical sex abuse crisis, to understand. Um, when I discovered some earlier writings of his, which, by the way, have recently been published in English, called the Letters of Tribulation, um, that that this was leadership in a, in a spiritual key uh, and or what the Jesuits would call discerning leadership. That is to say, I lead by facilitating and accompanying a process which opens us, history, the moment, people, up to the, the action of the Holy Spirit. And my role as a spiritual director is to accompany people by alerting them to the obstacles and the temptations which prevent them from receiving the grace which is on offer at this time. So when you go on an Ignatian retreat, you know, you do the spiritual exercises, the role of your spiritual director is extremely important because they're the, they have the wisdom, the guide, and they guide you. But the real action takes place, as it were, between you and God, and it takes place in prayer. But if you like, the agent of change is the Holy Spirit. So it's it's a very different kind of understanding of his leadership from saying, you know, the Pope is a man of of enormous ability and, and genius and, and charismatic power, you know, if you like, the heroic idea of leader. Now, one can admire Francis in all of those ways, his formidable intelligence, his incredible, but actually he would say, what I'm doing is facilitating a process. And I think we're seeing this in his pontificate, but we see it in this book in a very, very powerful way in respect of this crisis. And that's why I say at the end of the book, just at the moment when people were saying, 
the squares around the Vatican are empty, the Pope is cut off from the people, it's kind of the end of the pontificate, actually was the moment when the Pope was, if you like, resetting his whole mission, rediscovering his own mission, because faced with this crisis, uh, he has been uh, discerning at a very, very deep level. And he's like, and he's tried to be really close to people, you know, even when he couldn't be physically close to them, right? He he really increased the number of interviews that he was doing. For example, he gave you one earlier in the crisis and, and now there's this one. And if you think about the live streaming of his mass, you know, during lockdown. Of course, reached a million people in Italy. And then there was also, of course, the the um, Urbi at Orbi blessing, right? Where he went out into that empty St. Peter's Square and, and blessed the world. It was so moving. And, and addressed people, you know, through a TV camera. And he says in this book, actually, that the way that the church has responded to this crisis has deeply moved him. He says he's seen the church more alive than ever before because of the creativity with which people have responded. So discernment is all about saying, where is the good spirit working here? Where, where do we see God in this? Where are the movements of the spirit? And conversely, what do we see as the temptation that's undermining that? And yeah, the book is is very rich in 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 this discernment. Uh, and one of the things you were you were talking about the dangers of, of being closed off. You know, one of the problems about suffering and tribulation is that often we can it turns us in on ourselves, makes us defensive, fearful, anxious, and in all those ways we go into ourselves. And that's of course where faith comes in, uh, and, and where we have to say, okay, well. Who, who is really in charge of this process? And that was the great message, wasn't it, of the Urbi et Orbi? Yeah, God is in charge, relax, and allow yourself to be transformed. So one of the things he's doing in part one, which is about seeing, is he's saying, look at the margins, look at the suffering, look at the vulnerable, look, what is this crisis telling us about our world? Where is Where are the places of suffering uh, that are happening? And then look at them and allow yourself to be affected by that, be moved, be overwhelmed, if you like, you know, uh, open yourself up to the suffering because that allows our heart to open and opens our mind also to then uh, opening up to God, opening up to the other thing, which maybe we have not seen up till now. Right. And Austin, you know, it was interesting to see how this connected with the message of Fratelli Tutti, right? Because Fratelli Tutti, this recent encyclical by the Pope that was also very much informed by the COVID pandemic, um, was all about that. It was all about trying to get people to break down the the barriers that separate them, right? Whether that's, you know, the tendency to retreat into ideologies or, or anything else. Um, and he proposed this culture of encounter, right? This just face-to-face, person-to-person relationships as as kind of the first step towards then moving on to transform society. And maybe we can talk about some of the differences between Fratelli Tutti and this book. One of the things that stood out to me was that it seemed like in Fratelli Tutti, and obviously it's an encyclical, right? It's it's a magisterial teaching. And so it's it's kind of at a higher level and has to be maybe a little bit more restrained or something. Um, but in this book versus Fratelli Tutti, Francis actually, he speaks a lot more personally um, and goes into more depth about the social issues that he sees. You know, he talks about the Uyghurs, he talks about the George Floyd protests in the States, really in in a depth that we haven't seen before, which I thought was interesting. But he sees it all as as an integral part of, you know, this this seeing that then leads us to judging, that leads us to acting. So. What he's seeing when when he looks at one of the interesting parts in in part one is the George Floyd protests, uh, the Me Too movement, the reaction of the victims of clerical sex abuse who who have been raising their voice, like Juan Carlos Cruz, who you just had on. These are signs of the people 
being moved to protest against the violation of their dignity. So there's two things happening. There is the powerful who are uh, using people and exploiting them uh, and failing to to value and respect what is of God. So human dignity. And at the same time, you've got this protest that's, if you like, about recovering that dignity. So here's a lights and shadow discernment. You know, where is God in that? Well, clearly God, the spirit is moving in those protests. But then, of course, he, Francis is never going to be, you know, <laughs> led just down one path. He then talks about the, the pulling down of the statues, and which he really doesn't uh, think is a good thing at all. He sees, if he doesn't say this, but he sees the, the dangers there, the temptations there of seeking to purify the past, cancel the past, rather than own the past and assume it. Right. To maybe phrase it in a more positive way, he's he's he he highly values memory, right? And memory as being integral to the story of a people and how they understand themselves. And that means seeing the uglier parts of one's history too. And and, and as it were, assuming them in all of their shame, mm-hmm. you know, to say, well, actually, this is who we are. We 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 regret it, but we don't try and sort of, uh, you know, purify it. And, and that's important because, um, in many ways, it's the loss of that memory, the loss of that consciousness of who we are as a people in our glory and in our shame that lies at the heart of our, our kind of our anguish and our deracination. So there's this very beautiful moment, I think, where he kind of ends on part one, talking about the book of Nehemiah uh, and the people you know, of Jerusalem who are kind of rising up against their rulers to recover their dignity, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild Jerusalem. And he, he's always looking out of all of this and, and, and saying, you know, this is a Nehemiah moment you know, where, where the, he sees the people, as it were, on the move. But then there's all this false stuff going on. There's populism. Um, there's yeah, there's the very bad things, but he sees that happening as well, and that becomes then the basis on which he builds uh, his later vision in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that was interesting to me in this this choose section was Francis talks about how that discernment takes place not just in politics, or I guess how it should take place in politics. He points out a lot of the failures of that, um, but how he tries to apply this in the process of synods, right? Synodality. So in the church, we have these big meetings of bishops where they try to kind of come together, focus on one issue, and and discuss it and see where the Holy Spirit is trying to lead the church to go next. So we had one last year on Amazonia. Before that, we had one on the family, on young people. Um, but I thought this was interesting because it's such a hallmark of the Francis pontificate. He actually wants to have a synod on synodality next year. Um, and it was interesting to see how how Francis kind of applies this process of discernment to those synods, right? Coming together, looking for where the Holy Spirit is leading. Um, and he talks more personally than I think we've ever really heard him do about what it's been like to watch those synods from the inside as Pope and to see some of the media coverage of them, um, which was maybe a little bit indicting for those of us who cover the Vatican. Yeah, I, I think the parts on synodality are really among the most important parts of the whole book. And there's actually a very powerful section on what he calls the isolated conscience. Uh, he used to write about this a lot as a Jesuit. I love his stuff on the isolated conscience. It's really about this moment, you know, the beleaguered self, the, the, the conscience isolated from the march of the people of God. So again, it's about those people who close in on themselves, believe themselves superior, who divorce themselves, if you look like, from the movement of the spirit in the people of God. So having dealt with all of that, we then move to, to this question of how do we overcome conflict and division? A, a big theme, as you know, in Fratelli Tutti, uh, of, of the paralysis of polarization, which currently afflicts 
uh, a Western society, your country in particular, our church in particular? How do we overcome these paralyses, these tribal divisions? And then he has this very powerful philosophical stuff about overcoming uh, these divisions by holding together things in tension, opening ourselves up to the spirit. And then synodality is the way, the mechanism which he has developed in the church. It's not, obviously he didn't create synods, but he has reinvigorated them. Turning the synod into a mechanism of ecclesial discernment. In other words, how the church can develop its tradition by opening itself to the action of the Holy Spirit through assemblies of, of, of bishops, but the synods also include other people, uh, who come together to really undergo the same see, judge, act idea. You know? And what we get in those descriptions of the synod is his own reading of the spiritual movements of the synods, particularly the synod of the family, 2014, 2015, and synod on Amazonia of last year. Absolutely fascinating because he says, you know, the problem is that sometimes we just don't allow the spirit to overcome our divisions because we're too locked in our own duality, in our own, our, our own black and white thinking. And he does blame indeed the media for tending to reduce in the reporting of the sinners to say, oh, it's it's about this. It's a battle between two positions, A and B. And, the, and then the, the only kind of thing you're ever reporting on is who is winning. You know, It's A versus B and A, or who's won at the end, which he says actually undermines the discernment of the synod. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and he, he says that like the folks who go into a synod only focused on their one thing, right? And and whether they're going to get it or not get it, you know, they're not actually open to the way that the Spirit is moving in, in the larger discussion of the synod, right? Because these things that are the hot-button issues that people go into the synod looking for, they're very often the minority, right? They're always the minority of what's actually discussed. It's it's just one small detail. And what happens is the, the celebrity issue then sort of then takes over because it's because it's easy for people to understand. It's there's a disagreement and uh, and one on the other. But it's very interesting, isn't it? What he says about disappointment, you know, that actually. Uh, the people that go into a synod saying, you know, I want this, either I want this changed or I want to defend this, you know, because if we change it, that's the end of the church or the end of tradition. And then afterwards, then express themselves disappointed at the outcome. And he says this kind of disappointment is of the bad spirit because the Lord never lets us down. It's also true that his solution to so many of these things is discernment, right? It's still further, further discernment. That's what happened with the married priest in the Amazon issue, right? It was like not really resolved. There was the question of communion for the divorced and remarried and the synod on the family, where the answer was case-by-case discernment. Again, Francis really refuses to be put into black and white categories. He's almost always trying to be open to the spirit moving in the middle and taking the best from each side, right? And trying to find a synthesis based on that. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's 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 a compromise. In fact, he says very clearly in the book, you know, compromises in and of themselves are not Christian because actually what it is the the solution to the problem is what he calls overflow. He uses this word el desborde in Spanish, which is when we see things as in an either or way. And then, as it were, we allow the Holy Spirit in and, th- and, and the overflow breaks the banks of our thinking and opens us up to a, a, another possibility, which doesn't annul the, the A and B, but it assumes the best of them and takes it forward. And that, that's where he sees the action of the Spirit. And now, where, that has, where there has been a division in, in, in these synods, a disagreement, which is not resolved through overflow, as far as Francis is concerned, he does not have the right as Pope to proceed to change. 
Uh, and and so this is why I, uh, when I was speaking to Jonas the other day, I said, actually, this is the most important insight I think we've ever had from any pope into how he governs the church, how he leads the church. Uh, and I think enormously important, not just for understanding this pontificate, but also for the church in general. How do we as a church move forward in spite of our phenomenal sometimes divisions uh, and polarizations? And of course, as he says in the book, you know, one of the things that he, he wants to see is greater synodality in the church, you know, more diocesan synods or national bishops uh, assemblies like there's happening one in Australia at the moment, for example, you know, plenary councils in Germany is also happening. But of course, we're just learning how to do this. And these criteria that he's laying down in this book, I think, are absolutely fundamental uh, for, for a church that is learning synodality. Yeah, and uh, I mean, another part of synodality is this really important insight of um, it's kind of taking the census of the people, right? Even though these are meetings of bishops usually, but it's it's where is the church as a whole going? And that kind of brings us into the third section, which is about acting. Um, and I wanted to draw out here this this theme that also comes up in Fratelli Tutti, where Francis says he he talks about the importance of the people moving together, right? We talked a little bit earlier about how this idea that Francis brings up that that people are bound by a story together, right? He always says, he says that um, every people, every culture starts with a story of an original liberation and that's their memory, right? And then you and I spoke about how the memory also has to include kind of the shameful parts of a history, but he's really into this, this idea that he calls, um, he says, the people is a mythic category and mythic, he means this, this idea of story, right? Being bound together by story. Um, and you have pointed out that this is related to this idea from Latin American theology of a theology of the people. So for those of us who are not as familiar as you are with with kind of Latin American history theology, what does that mean and, and how is it related here? Well, the, the, the theology of the people, as it sometimes called, is a really an Argentine or river plate variation of what we call liberation theology, which was the post-1968, 1970s eruption of Latin American theological consciousness. And there was a part of, uh, of that uh, theological awakening um, which got caught up with, if you like, certain kind of Marxist sociological, mostly sociological rather than Marxist analyses of reality. So using very European categories. But the theology of the people was went in a very different direction, and it really looked to the national popular history of Latin America. And Bergoglio was very much uh, part of that without being you know, a formal theologian. But without getting in, more into sort of what the theology of the people was about, actually what I said to him in, in relation to part three was, you know, because I'd seen Fratelli Tutti by then, he had sent me an early draft. I said, look, your very, very uh, powerful critique of populism is very clear. You know, for you, populism is the exploitation of the anguish of ordinary people, uh, you know, for the benefit of power. You've got a very powerful critique of what I might call liberal technocracy, market-based individualism. You say that we need a politics that is genuinely of the people. Well, but let's really explain it. And let's say what we mean by the people. You know, what is the people? Because that's actually the starting point of this whole discussion often gets derailed because people, they associate, you know, what is the people? I mean, you have at the beginning of your constitution, we the people. But, you know, das Volk in Germany or il popolo in Italy has connotations of fascism and so on. So he actually has the early part of part three. He, I, I think, in a very kind of beautiful, patient, you know, <laughs> teacherly way, goes, oh, let me explain what I mean. And that, when he talks about the people there, as you were saying, is the mythic consciousness, that the sense of a people 
comes from the struggle. In other words, we are a people not because we have a shared language or culture or boundaries, because those things can change and mix, but actually our consciousness of a people is born out of a, a, a struggle. And where does that struggle come from? It, it is the dignity of a people. And the dignity comes from from God. You know, it is God who has conferred the dignity on us, or sorry, has made us aware of our dignity by coming close to us. And so this is where you get the kind of then the people of God and so on. So his, his diagnosis, it's very fascinating, his diagnosis of the world crisis is essentially that we have lost our sense of the dignity of the people. I may not have expressed that right. We have lost the dignity of the sense of the people. And that that our task now is to recover that. And so uh, part three is really the, the following through of this, of this idea. But I think the way, I, I don't think he has ever given such a clear or systematic explanation of what he means by a politics that is genuinely of the people as we get here. Yeah, I really found that it, it kind of helped me flesh out that part of Fratelli Tutti because I was, I was actually going through with that part about people as a mythic category with my reading group and we were kind of struggling to to figure out what he meant there and I was like oh I just need to send them this book because this explains it really well um but let's talk about you know these are kind of some some big conceptual issues right like what does it mean to have a politics of the people I actually found that his most concrete advice came at the end, where I think the first sentence is like, what what must I do now? Um, and he really takes it to a personal level. I was wondering if you could talk about that. What does he tell us to do now? Yeah, we're giving away a lot of the book here, but, uh, but no, I think, I think, um, I, I think that's the power of the epilogue, actually. is is So the epilogue, so we've had part three where... Uh, which ends on this very kind of powerful uh, statement of a vision for the regeneration, the redefinition of politics, economics, and society, a new way of living together, an economy that includes the poor, that provides work, that doesn't damage the planet. We've had this very kind of lofty stuff. And then in the epilogue, he's saying, now, you know, now you, you know, right. and there's this invitation to all of us. And he says to, to move out of ourselves, to, to decenter, to transcend. And in a very simple way, he says, look, you know, go down to your local elderly care, go to your local refugee uh, hospitality center, your local eco ecological regeneration project. Yeah, knock on the door, say, what do you guys do? How can I, I have no idea what you guys, you know, how you guys do it, but maybe I could help. You know, put yourself out there, make yourself vulnerable, offer yourself, because this is about service. We discover the Holy Spirit, we rebuild a new future in making ourselves vulnerable and opening ourselves out in this way. So in a way, it's a very, you know, we've had at the end of the Sea Judge Act, uh, a brilliant discernment of, of the world. We have actually a very simple invitation that none of us can, as it were, avoid or escape. You know, now me, now am I going to be part of this new future? Aston, thank you so much. I hope that we didn't give away too, too much of the book. Uh, but if our listeners, readers, uh, viewers want to check it out, it is uh, Let Us Dream by Pope Francis, published by Simon & Schuster, and it's out December 1st. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Peace. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson production assistance from Kevin Jackson. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also email us your questions and comments at insidethevatican at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. <laughs>